right. Welcome back, everybody, to part two of our first episode of season two of Beyond the Breakers. I'm still Tanner. I'm still here with Taylor. Yep. We're ready to continue our story. Taylor, what did you do during our break? Not a whole lot. I sat here and read a couple news stories. Ah, right. The break that was only a few minutes rather than the two-ish days. But actually a couple of days. But actually, in fact, <laughs> a couple of days. So yeah, we're going to get back into it. Quick review. We'll do a rundown of uh, of part one. Maybe those two days have been stressful. Maybe you needed the brain space for other stuff than remembering uh, the first episode. We'll do a little breakdown. Or maybe you didn't listen to part one, in which case, stop what you're doing right now. Go back. Listen to part one. We spent a lot of time on part one. Mm-hmm. Don't take it for granted. Go listen to it. <laughs> so as a review for part one, we looked at some of the history of Northern Navigation Company, a subdivision of Canada Steamship Lines, and their operations on the Great Lakes in the late 19th and early 20th century. We discussed the design of the uh, the SS Noronic, uh, quote, the largest and finest vessel on the Great Lakes. Noronic and her sister ships were a way to travel really in style around the Great Lakes. You could take a weekend, take a week for not a terribly, you know, large amount of money and have a good time on these ships. It was definitely like obtainable luxury to someone living in the Midwest in the United States or Canada. Yeah, the idea that if you if you had, you know, had a little bit saved up, you could do something that made you feel probably maybe like a big shot, maybe more more than you do on a on a daily basis. We discussed at the end of that episode, we discussed the loss of one of those sisters, the SS Hamonic which caught fire while docked in Sarnia with the loss of one crew member and the entire ship and some train cars. Uh, So out of this event came the story of Elmer Kleinsmith, who was that very quick thinking coal worker who used his coal crane to transfer people in small groups from the bow of the burning ship to safety. Uh, We also saw that very quick, very decisive action taken by Horace Beaton, the captain to cut loose from the dock and run full speed ahead, and beached the ship about 100 yards downriver. That's what really allowed passengers to escape in safety. Otherwise, trying to escape this burning ship into another fire would have been not, not so great for the casualty numbers. So in part two, we'll move on to the final tragic voyage of the Neuronic herself. But we're done talking about fires, right? No more fires? There will be more fire. There will be fire. <laughs> there will be fire. The sequel to There Will Be Blood. <laughs> This is very strange. As, as we said in the in the first uh, part of this, this is our first two-part episode. So it's weird starting a recording with the incident on my notes. Here we go. Uh-huh. September 17th, 1949. Mm-hmm. SS Noronic is docked at Pier 9 in Toronto Harbor. Uh, she'd started her journey from Detroit several days earlier. This was an excursion through Lake Erie and Lake Ontario. Uh, She had arrived the previous evening around 7 p.m. So there were an estimated 525 passengers aboard the ship, many of whom had debarked to to experience the Toronto nightlife. Right. The majority of the uh, the passengers on board were American. So, you know, out trying to experience some exotic culture, Canada. (laughs) Something you can't see in the States. Can't get Crown Royal here in in America and experience it. Most of the crew also were given the night off. Of the 171 crew, only 15 remained on the ship for the night. 
this is going to be very important for <laughs> later tellings of the story. Not just what happens, but the perception of the story after it's been told in the papers um, right. and, and, and repeated over time. So keep that in mind. There's only 15 crew members remaining on the ship here. Also, the captain is not among those who stayed on board all night. He had gone ashore to visit some friends. The first mate did stay on the ship, but he was not on duty at the beginning of the incident that we're going to be discussing. He was asleep in his cabin. So effectively, there's even less than 15 people. Right. Because, you, you know, crew, you have some, people sleeping. And yeah. Stuff. Some of those people aren't actively on, on duty. Uh, right. So one, one of the mates was the highest ranking person awake and on duty at the time. Right. The passengers who remained on the ship, they had, you know, various forms of entertainment, drinking, dancing, playing cards, all the things people like to do. The all orchestra. the things we did before the Internet to entertain ourselves. All before these darn kids in their, in their smartphones. <laughs> you know, the orchestra was, was still there. They were playing, doing their normal thing. So there's, there's stuff to do on the ship as well. Around 2.30 a.m., a passenger named Don Church noticed the smell of smoke as he was walking through a corridor on the ship. Well, that's not good. Yeah, not a great thing. Maybe he was just more perceptive of this than others would have been. Maybe he just hadn't had as much to drink. Maybe his wits were more about him. All those things aside, he worked as an appraiser for a fire insurance company. <laughs> so maybe he was just I don't know, very, uh, he, he picked up on this very quickly, maybe. It's just weird. Earlier, he had a conversation with the captain about, like, it'd be bad if a fire happened here, right? Which sounds like he's in the mafia or something. Right, doesn't it? Like, it'd be real. It'd be a shame if a fire it's a beautiful broke out ship. Nice be, a sh- be a shame if it caught on fire, wouldn't it? It's, it's palatial. <laughs> it's so palatial. Church followed the smoke, and he, he found that it was coming from a locked closet. And then he alerted the closest crew member he could find, which was a bellboy. The bellboy got the keys to open the closet. This is why basic OSHA fire training is really important. <laughs> Let's review what happens when you give a fire more oxygen. Well, that's not good. It isn't. It isn't what you want. So he unlocks, they open this door. And I'll pause here. The, in, in some of the things, the bellboy is sort of blamed for doing this. But I would also think that Mr. Church, the fire specialist, Hey, don't open that would door. have been telling him, hey, don't do that, maybe. I don't know. If that wasn't the best idea, you would hope that the fire insurance specialist would be telling him, please don't open this door. <laughs> anyway, the flames exploded out into the corridor with this new infusion of oxygen, and they spread quickly throughout the ship. According to Don Church, quote, they flowed around the corner like a stream of water. Not great. So it's literally pouring out of here. <laughs> The reason that in the first part of this episode, the reason we talked about the burning of the harmonic was mm. to give an example of what happens when this group of ships, when they're exposed to fire. Right. Because that took five minutes, right? Mm-hmm. Key factor we talked about was the interior furnishings, almost entirely wood. These are not ships that are built to sustain something like this. They're ships that are built to be comfortable and to quite literally add fuel to this fire. Uh, mm-hmm. These wooden fixtures were painted, lacquered and kept polished with frequent applications of lemon oil. Interesting. In the episode we did about Cason, that ship off the coast of Spain that caused a uh, chemical spill concern, we talked about those yeah. hazard cards, the, the safety data sheets. If yep. you look at the, the safety data sheet for lemon oil, you'll see that it's pretty flammable. Well, that's not good. Like nine of the 11 ingredients are flammable. <laughs> 
so yeah, that's what they're using to polish this thing. All of these pictures. So this whole ship, the inside, is covered with wood that has been coated in a very flammable substance. Just now, we, we talked about Don Church being the first to notice it. This might not actually be the case. He might just have been the first person to notify someone about it. Therefore, making it worse. <laughs> so, various stories here that I I don't quite know how to feel about these, but some other passengers may have independently noticed this and just decided to leave. Three women from Detroit, uh, Mrs. Hintz, Mrs. Hafeli, and Mrs. Sleninsky, they reportedly smelled smoke and calmly left the ship. <laughs> I'm out. Which, I don't know if they just, did, like, smelled it and didn't tell anyone. Hey, maybe right. there's a fire. Hey, hey this seems dangerous. We're going to leave. Bye. Which just strikes me as irresponsible, but, I mean, in the moment, I don't know what I would do. I, I well, Was it I more would... just annoying to them? Like, like, oh, this is annoying that it smells like smoke. Yeah, like, maybe, bye. like, oh, someone's someone's smoking in the room next to us, and we don't like that. I don't know. Right. Um, I hope that if I thought there was a fire, I would tell someone. The bellboy, so he can open up the locker or the, yeah. the closet and make it worse. Right. Another one, Josephine Kerr. Uh, Josephine Kerr was traveling with several family members. Uh, among them were her nieces, Kathleen and Barbara, and her nephew, Philip. All of those children aged 10 or under. Josephine's brother and sister-in-law were sharing a cabin with Philip, the nephew, while Josephine shared a room with the two girls. Uh, Chekhov's children in Chekhov's our Chekhov's children. <laughs> Chekhov makes many appearances on our podcast. We should have him on as a guest. He'll be our, our invitation after Mayor Pete. We'll try and get Anton Chekhov on the podcast. <laughs> uh, soon after returning to her room in the early morning, Josephine smelled smoke and roused the girls to, to leave. Uh, the girls had already gone to bed. She gets them up, gets them dressed, and assumes that they need to leave. Right. Josephine knocks on the room where the other curs are staying, but she doesn't get an answer. So she assumes they've already left, uh, may maybe having the same idea. So she decides to leave with the girls when she's not hearing anything. But quickly, she found that the main corridors were blocked by thick smoke. Seems like the situation's escalating. It is, yes. We'll come back to the story of Josephine and those girls later, which I think I added to my notes. But if not, you can remind me, Taylor. Let's go back to Don Church in the Bellboy. With that fire spreading so rapidly, they located a nearby fire hose and attempted to use it on the flames. Do you want to guess what happened? Uh, it worked perfectly, put the fire out, no issues. Didn't work at all. However, <laughs> however, I will say, I don't know about fire hoses at the time, how they functioned, but I do know that using a stream of water is a bad idea on a lemon, a lemon oil fire. So, I don't, I don't know. If this was more of a spray or a foam, that probably would have helped. But otherwise, maybe it's a good thing it didn't work. Uh, with none of the fire equipment working... A distress signal was issued from the ship about eight minutes later. This is just a blast from the ship's horn. At this point, the ship is about halfway engulfed in flames. And it's noted that the distress signal jammed in the on position. Huh? So leading to just one, what's described as a piercing, endless shriek playing in the background of, of what's about to play out here. So everything That's we're describing... Like so much more ominous. Like, uh, you know what I mean? Like, uh, now you just have, like... It's just another sense that's kind of blocked mm -hmm. now amongst the smoke and the you know, flames and everything. Yeah, it's very much... Um, I just recently watched the movie The Lighthouse uh, with Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe, and there's this like very eerie sound that just constantly like comes up in the background like mm -hmm. very consistently, 
and it's just very off-putting. Um, so imagine that, this blasting horn in the background the whole time all this stuff's happening. Uh, so in a few more minutes, the entire ship is burning. Just like the harmonic, it takes a handful of minutes for this whole luxury liner to go up in flames. So according to one survivor being quoted in the Ottawa Journal, the fire swept through the ship as fast as you could have walked the distance. Jeez. So yeah, it's moving at a walking pace around all these That's, decks. It's not great. No. At this point, passengers are doing whatever they can to find the best possible way off the ship. There's a few problems with this. There's very few emergency exits, and all of the exits from the ship are on one single deck. So you have to get to this deck if you want to get off the ship in the way it's designed. Right. There's no training on how to access these exits in an emergency, at least for the passengers. It seems like the crew probably were trained at least on how to do it, but whether that was communicated to the passengers is not really clear. It doesn't seem like it was. Right. Also, even if they had been trained on that, there's basically no crew on the ship to do that. Right. That's what I was going to say. Like, even if you have trained people at this point, yeah, when you're down to 15 people, it's just not enough to coordinate and keep things orderly. Yeah, you're down to 15. Like you said, some of them are off duty. You know, the first mate's asleep. Some of them are bellboys. I mean, how much responsibility do? do we really right. expect, a, you know, probably a kid who's like 16, 17 to take in this scenario? But yeah, like I think what we can see is like we're setting up the conditions for the part of the episode that we always talk about. This is the part where there's just so many different ways to not make it out mm -hmm. of this. Yeah, so I'm quoting here from Adam Bunch, uh, writing in 2016, quote, People were burned alive in their beds. They were suffocated in their rooms. They rushed along the decks and hallways in flames. A few were trampled to death. Some smashed through windows in their bid to escape, leaving blood pouring down their faces. The most desperate started to jump over the sides of the ship. The lucky ones hitting the water where rescuers, police, firemen, and passersby were pulling people from the lake. One person drowned. Another hit the pier and died from the impact. Other jumpers didn't make it clear of the ship. They smashed into the decks below, making them slippery with their blood. When the first ladder was finally hoisted up against the burning ship, passengers pushed forward in such a rush that the ladder snapped, tossing people into the water. It's a pretty chaotic scene that's being described. It is, and it, and it really highlights how it's, it's hard to even start the rescue process, because as soon as you add that one extra lifeline in, it's going to get sort of swamped mm -hmm. with people trying to use it. Which I imagine also comes down to the fact that you don't have enough crew to manage that. You have mm -hmm. to have someone on board the vessel to say, hey, we have to do this mm -hmm. in an orderly fashion, or none of us are escaping. Yeah. From the Hamilton Spectator... One passenger reported that a rope was tossed over the rail, and I put a hitch knot on it to hold it to a stanchion. As I did so, three men pushed in front of me and shoved some screaming women out of the way. They went down. I'd like to point out that I would be screwed in this scenario because I cannot uh, put a hitch knot in a rope <laughs> no. just on command. Yeah, not something that uh, I know how to do. I'd be like, thanks for the rope. I don't know what I'm going to do with this now. Thank you. <laughs> Toss it back and tell them to tie it? I don't know. Pull out my phone and quick, quick YouTube quick. How, to do a, how to do a hitch knot. Not everyone's exit was quite as hectic as this, though. You know, we talked about earlier some of those people just sort of quietly leaving the ship when they thought it was on fire. Two women, Mrs. Saul Kekti and Mrs. Max Peller. So again, I can't find their given names, just their husband's names. They, quote, were lucky to stumble across a gangway to the SS Kingston, which was sharing the slip with the Neuronic. 
They were the last to leave this way, however, as the Kingston backed away from the Neuronic when sparks and burning debris started to come down on the decks. Can you imagine just walking to another ship and be like, well, we're good now. Thanks. <laughs> Uh, another story is Catherine Peters and Eula Korn, two women in their 20s from South Bend, Indiana. Their room was right across from the purser's office. They had settled in for the night when a crew member knocked on the door and told them the ship was on fire and that they needed to leave. So in their story, someone else, it doesn't note if this is a passenger or a crew member. But according to, uh, I believe it's Peters who was being quoted in the article, someone else told them that the fire was under control and there was no need to leave. Interesting. So according to Peters, she says, quote, the fire visible through the window was bright red. I said, this is not under control. I'm getting out of here. Trusting her instincts, saying it doesn't look like this fire that I can see through the window is under control. Peters and Korn made it onto the pier and then were directed on board a nearby ship, the Cayuga, to get away from the flames and smoke. As with the Kingston, the Cayuga eventually had to move away from the Noronic to avoid catching fire herself. Right. Uh, the Ottawa Journal reported that a fire was spotted in the uh, the empty wheelhouse of the Cayuga. So they're, they're sitting there and stuff's falling onto it, and there's even another potential fire that starts on the Cayuga, but it's able to be extinguished uh, pretty quickly. Nice. A few minutes later, and there would have been another disaster as bad as the Neuronic. Yeah, that's something you don't think about. Like, with all these other vessels around it are full of people. Like, this could... Can you imagine how chaotic it is if you have mm-hmm. multiple vessels on fire and vessels trying to leave and, and coordinating all those efforts? Like, it could have spiraled out of control so much, you know, worse mm-hmm. than it did. Um, something that'll come up later is a report on this that's written by Fire Engineering Magazine talking about how particularly difficult ship fires are to deal with just mm-hmm. because of the complicated nature of the insides and just the numerous avenues of oxygen. Like, it's, it's impossible right. to isolate them. So if you have two burning ships like this, it would have truly been, I mean, this is a, a devastating tragedy, but this would have been twice as bad, potentially. It's also important to note here that Cayuga had just returned from a midnight cruise not that long before. Uh, so most of her crew were still on the ship and alert and ready to do stuff. That's pretty fortunate that, yeah, you have like a a fully ready crew to to respond. Yeah, if you imagine that same, you know, burning ember landing in an empty wheelhouse on, like we have with the Neuronica ship that only has 15 crew, that ship probably goes up also. Mm -hmm. The first fire personnel arrived on scene about 11 minutes from when Don Church first notified the crew of the fire. Uh, The fire would burn until about 5 a.m., and it would be a couple more hours still before the ship was safe enough for fire and rescue personnel to board. Edwin Feeney, a reporter for the Toronto Star, uh, he wrote the following about what he saw. Quote, I was the first newspaper man allowed aboard the flame-swept hull of the Neuronic. It was a horrible picture of charred remains amid foot-deep embers and melted glass. I saw the blackened bits that were once people. There was a young woman clutching her baby. The remains crumpled when picked up by firemen. But, like, how were newspapers so much more graphic back in the day? Can you imagine that being printed now? Yeah, like, you definitely see... like, you wouldn't. ...where, I don't know, standards have changed somewhat. But also enjoy your lifetime of PTSD now, Edwin Feeney. I know you never understood what it was, but (laughs) you had it. Yeah. Almost the entire ship 
was white hot and all woodwork had been consumed and the metalwork twisted and buckled. Quoting again from Adam Bunch here, bodies were everywhere, skeletons found embracing in the hallways, others still in bed. Some turned entirely to ash by a heat so intense it could incinerate bone. And not that I'm doubting Mr. Bunch's journalistic integrity, but like, I do sometimes wonder if these stories are a little romanticized. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Skeletons found embracing, like maybe, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure that happened. I mean, I'm sure like in that situation, there's not much else you can do if you're like a parent and a child or husband and wife. Um, It just, it definitely feels like a bit like let's sell some newspapers by putting the worst parts we can. Yeah. And again, that Adam Bunch, I mean, that's a, that's a modern writer writing about it. I'm, I'm sure oh, he's, that's true. I'm sure he's, he's quoting, quoting from a, from a contemporary source, but still like that's the kind of stuff that people want to hear in this situation. Yeah, yeah. The bodies that could be removed from the ship were stacked on the pier until there wasn't any space left. Uh, at which point the horticultural building at the Canadian national exhibition had to be used as well as a sort of makeshift morgue. And I believe I saw online that that building is now a, like a nightclub or like a music club. Interesting. Seems like if you had like a a story of like haunted places, that would probably be one. That almost definitely has to be one. I could be. I I think it was called music, like M U Z I K. But of course, it is misremembering this. Any any of our Toronto people, let us know if you've ever hit up the music uh, club. All right, so let's get into the some of the aftermath of this. Like the you know the fire burns for a long time. They're finally able to get on the ship and start assessing what the situation is. So final death toll estimates range from 118 to 136. The most solid estimate seems to be 119. This does include one member of the crew, uh, mm-hmm. who was paymaster Louisa Dustin. She got off the ship. She was taken off the ship, but she died of her injuries in the hospital. This is very, very important. Remember this for later when we're discussing the discourse around the shipwreck. One of the pervasive myths i would say about this is that none of the crew were killed in this interesting you have this horrendous tragedy all these passengers die and none of the crew like the crew escapes unharmed that's not true and we'll see other examples of that as well right an exact cause was never established but one of the big suspicions was a carelessly disposed of cigarette faulty wiring is another potential cause again people are they're kind of just listing what are potential causes of this there's really no Because we don't actually know. There's no single piece of evidence that says one way or another. Arson is occasionally thrown out as a cause, like on the occasional, you know, webpage. I think the Wikipedia mentions arson, but I I never saw anything from the contemporary writing or anything supported about this later on. Yeah, that's a pretty big claim to have zero support. Especially when, if it started in like a supply closet, in all likelihood, it was probably a member of the crew smoking a cigarette. Yeah. And then tossed it. Like, I mean, that's what had to happen, right? Exactly. Like, there, there's a very simple explanation, and it's probably the simplest one here. Especially, like, you're probably mad that you're one of the 15 people that didn't get to go have fun. <laughs> and, like, you got to be up all night working. It's like, well, I'm going to sneak a cigarette. Oh, my boss is coming. I got to throw this yeah. out. Um, so while the initial cause isn't really known, a lot more can be said about why it became so deadly. So I'm going to be taking pretty heavily here from a write-up on the incident uh, that appeared in Fire Engineering Magazine from October 1st of 1949. So this is just a a couple weeks after this happened. Um, And this is written by and for people who know about fires. A representative of the steamship company fixed the time of the fire at about 2.25 a.m. This witness believed the fire had been burning for as long as 15 minutes. 
Inasmuch as the department received its first notification at 2.38 a.m., this would indicate almost half-hour's delay. It took the first due units of the fire force not over three minutes to reach the pier from the Adelaide station. This would place their arrival at close to 2.41 a.m. Yet, by that time, the fire could be seen at some distance, so much so that District Chief Jay Stevens, responding on the first call, radioed for a second alarm while still en route. So as they're approaching this, the guy in charge immediately sees and says, we can't handle this on our own. We need more. Right. Like they know it's a bigger thing than just their mm-hmm. their capabilities. Which turned out to be totally accurate of an assessment. <laughs> Continuing on here. It has been determined that no one from the ship notified the fire department directly. The first notice was received by telephone from Pier 9. This was sent by a watchman, Dan Harper, who with the fellow security officer, Andrew Church, had discovered smoke pouring from the port and starboard sides of Sea Deck. According to Church, when they returned from telephoning the alarm, the whole upper deck was a mass of flames. So in the time between them noticing smoke coming out of the ship, they go make the call, they come back, the whole thing's on fire. Interesting. So seeing what can happen in just the span of a a few minutes here. Uh, The crew's criticized for attempting to fight the fire themselves and delaying that outside notification. Like that report just said, no one from the ship contacted the fire department. Only right. onlookers saw that this is on fire and, and called the fire department. It's interesting that they're criticized for fighting it themselves. Because I feel like that's still like a, such a common mistake people make when doing fire stuff. Like, fighting it yourself should kind of be like a last resort situation. Mm. Like, you generally want to get the people that know what they're doing in there. Well, yeah, and like a situation a like this, a situation like this, you'd, you'd have to think it doesn't need to be an either-or situation. Like right. send you someone send someone to call the fire department and you know see if you can do what you can to fight it on your own. Yeah, so that's the main criticism that comes down on the crew here is you know, you have this passenger and this bellboy who are trying to fight this thing initially for what seems like a span of several minutes before anyone else is officially notified. And as we saw there, the fire department gets on scene within three minutes of being notified. Mm-hmm. So if that happens earlier, who knows how the story plays out. It's not like a deficiency of the fire department in terms of response. It seems Mm -hmm. like they actually did everything they could quickly. Yeah. So continuing on from that report, quote, she was built on the Isherwood system with watertight compartments, but with no fire bulkheads or stops. Well, that's not good. So if you listen to part one, you hear us mention, you know, the Isherwood system is, is mentioned in one of the uh, news articles about her when she's launched uh, saying, yeah, that's, that's fine and great for, other issues that might plague a ship uh, sailing the lakes. You know, she's watertight. She's collision, uh, probably not collision proof, but she's protected against collisions, but nothing about fire. Right. There were no fire doors or bulkheads on any of the decks to prevent the lateral travel of fire. According to Howard Baxter, who was a shore captain for Canada steamship lines, this would quote, not have been practical to install new fire resistant bulkheads because it would have affected her stability and necessitated structural changes that would have cost $250,000. We'll keep that detail in mind because it, it'll play into our story later in the aftermath of this accident. Right. A sister ship, the Harmonic, burned in 1945 with one fatality. So again, there's the fire department backing up the idea that yes, someone did die in that previous burning. Right. Of, of the harmonic. Passengers testified to having broken the, uh, what are called annunciator boxes. It's just what <laughs> we would think of as, as a fire alarm today, like you would smash and it would Im- immediately set off the fire alarm. 
these enunciator boxes, which should have triggered the fire alarm, but many swore to hearing no sirens or bells or whistles. Uh, undoubtedly, the opening of stateroom and cabin doors and the open windows and portholes gave impetus to the flames, which fed on the carpets and painted trim and combustible construction. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, you, that's like the perfect conditions to nurture the fire. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing to stop the flow of air. Everything inside the ship is easily combustible. Not a great situation. Uh, so to sum up here, automated systems didn't appear to work effectively. Firefighting equipment on board was either inoperable or inadequate for fighting this type and this magnitude of fire. The fire department wasn't notified immediately when the fire was discovered, with crew and passengers attempting to fight it instead. And then, of course, the material of the ship itself was a fire hazard. Basically, everything inside the outer hull was a fire hazard. Right. One last quote from that report. Given just a few minutes earlier notice, the Toronto firefighters would unquestionably have been able to carry their fight on the fire aboard the ship itself. What this would have meant in the way of rescue of personnel through protecting exits and restoring confidence to the frightened passengers can only be conjectured. It is interesting to think about that perhaps they could have fought this a little more offensively rather than what it ends up being, which is like defensively fighting it and being like, we need to contain the fire to the vessel, which mm -hmm. is what ends up happening. Yeah. Like, it's like you said, like they're not even really trying to put it out because they can't like, they're just trying to make sure it doesn't spread. Mm -hmm. You can see the, the last bit there. He says, this can only be conjectured, but that's kind of doing a lot of work there. You can definitely see his opinion of this, you know, as a, as a fireman himself, that if we were able to get on here sooner and protect the exits, more people could have gotten off. Right. So, looking further into the investigation, the fire on the Noronic, uh, it burned so hot and for so long that a, a large number of these bodies couldn't be visually identified. Right. We talked about you know, firemen and entering the ship and picking up bodies, and they just disintegrate as they pick them up. You know, some of these people had to be identified by what remained of their clothing. You know, some of these mm -hmm. people that were killed in their cabins could only be identified by their personal belongings. So, this provided an opportunity for some morbidly groundbreaking science to be uh, to be employed. And that's in the form of x-ray technology and forensics. Interesting. Um, so I'll be quoting and paraphrasing from two different articles here, both from the Northwestern Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology. One of them is called The Value of Rentgenology in the Identification of Mutilated and Burnt Bodies. The other is called X-ray Studies in Establishing Identity and Manner of Death. So I'll share both of those articles on our Patreon. This is the first time that a large number of bodies had to be identified by rentgenography, which is just an old name for like radiography, like x-rays. Interesting. It had been used in individual cases before when it had been like specifically requested and called in to help. This is the first but time not in like a mass kind of. Situation. Yeah, this is the first time we have like tons of people who we have no idea who this is and this is the only possible way to identify them. Right. Of the 119 deaths, 107 of those bodies were burned beyond any recognition. So one of the things here was some of these people, a lot of these people, had had x-rays made in life. So that was obviously helpful. If someone was suspected of being on the ship, they would you know, contact that hospital, wherever that might be, and they had something to compare. Uh, in four cases, distinctive abnormalities of the spine, such as abnormal curvature, is what led to identification. Arthritis of the spine was present in seven cases, uh, and then of the knee and heel in one case each. 
In most cases, identification consisted of an accurate matching of normal bony landmarks, particularly margins of joints. 24 confirmations were made this way, with another five likely confirmations. Diseases which leave recognizable bony alterations include tuberculosis of bones or joints, syphilis, certain vitamin deficiency diseases, arthritis of several kinds, osteomyelitis, and tumors. A side note here, a significant number of the people on this vessel would have been quite old, in the Mm -hmm. middle-aged to elderly range. So some of these things like arthritis and, and some of that bone deterioration, things like that, definitely came into play as as identifying factors here. Right, yeah, that makes sense. Of paramount importance, rontgenograms may reveal the true identity of a body since there are enough differences present in the rontgenograms of various portions of the body that no two people are the same. I didn't verify this, but I'm assuming that rontgenogram just means an x-ray. Right. Um, based on context. Uh, an average of 13 x-ray films of every one of the dead were taken, and these films were compared with available x-ray films from hospitals one woman was identified by a fracture in her pelvis. It's very interesting that it's kind of a more cutting-edge technology. It seems like the forensic work that goes into this, like very early forensic work, mm-hmm. that today would be so standard. Yeah, and uh, another thing that was mentioned was also uh, dental identification, mm-hmm. which again had been done before. Again, one of the problems here is that you have this fire burning so hot that sometimes there's literally nothing left. Right. That doesn't help so much sometimes. So let's talk about the crew. If you read the more easily accessible sources about this, you know, web pages, the Wikipedia mentions this too. Mm-hmm. Some of the books that I read, the, the book where I first found out about this describes it this way. You read about the Neuronic and there's this pervasive idea about it that since none of the crew were among the dead, which in itself is not true. They acted in a cowardly manner, and they thought only of their own safety. Fleeing Mm -hmm. this burning ship and allowing dozens, scores of passengers to burn to death in their cabins. That's at least what I picked up as the common perception of what happened on the Neuronic. And it's absolutely not the case. Right. You know, reading the contemporary sources, reading the investigations afterward, that's simply not what happened. You know, when I started researching the story as our first one for season two... That's the story I expected to tell, really, from what I had read, the more surface-level stuff. I kind of expected to have a clear cut-and-dry case of, well, the crew were totally negligent and led to the deaths of all these people. That's not what I found. Right. So to begin with, the idea of the crew fleeing the ship is inaccurate because most of them weren't on board in the first place. You know, as we said, most of them had been dismissed. Only 15 people were still on board. They'd been let go for the night by Captain Taylor. Right. Of the crew that were on board, numerous reports of of them doing all in their power to help passengers off the ship. Right. I think it's more of a failing of letting that many people be off duty. Mm -hmm. You can't expect someone who's off duty, you know, out having some drinks with friends to like rush to the flaming ship and jump back on board. Yeah, we we would never if, if you went out to lunch and your office building caught on fire, never in a million years would we expect you to run back in. Right. When you get back. The the failure is by letting that many people off. Right. So, yeah, the idea of of the crew, you know, acting in this cowardly manner and just fleeing the ship is is not accurate. What could be criticized, obviously, is the preparation and the emergency protocols. Mm -hmm. But on an individual level, 
in the time frame of this incident, I would have a hard time labeling anyone as a coward, just from the stuff that I've read about it, just based on what is reported about their actions by people who were there. One of them is Aurel Borgon, uh, a member of the galley crew. He'd only been on the Neuronic for three weeks when the fire broke out and people needed to get off. He tied several sheets together to lower over the side to help passengers escape. Uh, quoting from him, On the pier, I saw others trying to come down the line with flames right behind them. I tried to go to the edge of the pier to help them, but some of my friends held me back as the fire was sweeping all over the place. So he helps people off. He gets off himself, and he tries to go back on. Again, this is his testimony, so right. who knows? But he's doing something actively to help people get off before he gets off himself. Uh, Robert Sage, he escaped the Noronic. He moved over to the Cayuga, like some of the passengers did. He's actually the one who spots the fire in the wheelhouse on the Cayuga. Okay. And so he's a crew member from Noronic. He's over there. Uh, he's asked to take a look at the upper decks, make sure that there's nothing starting. He's the one who notices this fire in the wheelhouse and is instrumental in putting it out. Uh, so he he prevents another equal-scale tragedy here. Right. Uh, Robert Hansen reported uh, attempting to put out the fire but having no pressure from the fire hydrants. Uh, he says, Then I began helping passengers over the side from the observation deck. I just threw them and pushed them over. So he yeah, just... Like, what, what else can you do at that point but try to make sure people are making it to the water? Yeah. Like, at that point, the water is the best place to be, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. uh, Captain William Taylor, so he returned from his night ashore just as the danger on board was being realized. He gets on board, um, and then he finds out what's going on. So quoting here from the Ottawa Journal, this is the captain... This is the captain speaking. Um, <laughs> I was just entering my cabin on A deck when a wheelsman came and told me there was a fire on C deck. I told him to go put in an alarm from the dock if one had not already been put in from there. Though all I expected to find was a little smoke. When I arrived, there was so much smoke I couldn't go after the stairway. Then I knew it was much more than a minor blaze. We found a woman who had fainted and carried her to the deck below so that she could be carried out. I ran forward to the bow where mate Jerry Wood was putting people over the side with a rope. I went back and fought as long as I could on that side and then went down to D deck. The rooms of crew and passengers there were open with no one in them. Uh, Taylor used the fire hose. Uh, his apparently was working totally fine <laughs> until the water was up to his knees. So according to Taylor, members of the crew were doing their jobs as well as they could and passengers were reasonably cool under the circumstances. Uh, Special Officer Russell Brown helped me with an axe in breaking the windows. Uh, Taylor had to be treated for burns and, and exhaustion due to his efforts. So again, the crew that's available is staying on hand to help people off. The captain himself is down there. He's working himself to exhaustion and getting himself pretty seriously burned. So like, the captain is literally walking into this. Like, when he returns, right? Like, he's literally walking into the scene. Yeah, well, so when he walks on, it's it's not a full conflagration quite yet. Yeah, but, like, within a matter of ten minutes, it goes from, like, there's mm -hmm. a problem to, like, there's a major problem. Yeah, he had been aboard spending the night with some friends at their at their home. He comes home from his relaxing night, and then he becomes a firefighter. So from that same fire engineering write-up, the last two persons believed to have left the vessel alive were first mate Gerald Wood and bosun R.D. Morrison. 
they were taken off over aerial fire ladders from the upper deck. So the idea of the crew fleeing the ship and leaving the passengers to their fate is complete garbage, I would say. Right. Uh, despite the fact that that's the story you hear in a lot of the descriptions of this. Like we said with the harmonic, maybe it makes a better story if we say the crew fled and let these people burn to death. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that clearly like, the failures here are not in what the crew did once the fire started. They did what they could. The failure is like setting up the conditions that a fire can start and go unnoticed for 15 minutes and then mm-hmm. not be properly handled like at the very beginning. Yeah. So some of the consequences of this. Getting into this, it's it's interesting to note that one of these articles written by a former crewman, Ted Wright, he refers to the ship as almost fireproof. Interesting choice. Not the word I would use for what he's describing, though. He's using that because of the large amount of firefighting equipment. For me, fireproof means that something can't catch on fire. Right. Not that you can easily put it out. That's like saying my car is crash-proof because that's a good safety rating. Right. You know, as we saw, most of it was inoperable at the time it was used, at the time it was needed. Um, It had been inspected, like, on the normal inspection schedule, and everything appeared to be fine. So there there didn't appear to be any historical problems with this, but Mm. at the time they were needed, uh, whether it was, you know, user error, whatever it may be, they, they weren't able to be used the way that they were expected to work. Right. After the disaster, it was actually revealed that there had been a smaller fire in the stateroom, uh, in a stateroom, about 24 hours earlier. Interesting. According to crewman Marvin Brown, whom we might, I would feel better maybe calling him crew boy. He was only 16. Okay. Uh, Marvin Brown, he says, that was why someone found a fire extinguisher empty when he tried to use it. It had been used to put out the fire on B-deck. Hmm. So it had been in working order, but it had been used to fight a fire the previous day and hadn't been. I, I would just imagine if like little fires probably aren't all that uncommon. Cause even mm-hmm. the captain doesn't seem that worried at first. Like how often does a guest throw a cigar cigarette in their garbage and it, you know, it lights up mm-hmm. or something like that. I feel like everyone's smoking in these times. So there's just so much more potential for that. Yeah. Here, before I forget, because I realized I didn't add it to the end of my notes here, I said I would come back to that story of Josephine Kerr and her mm-hmm. two nieces. They both made it off the ship. Her brother and sister-in-law and her nephew did not. Mm. Um, so whether that is because they were elsewhere on the ship or maybe they were in their room and they just didn't hear them knocking, they did not make it off the ship. But right. Josephine and her two nieces did. So that that's the conclusion to their story, just to wrap that up. Uh, other consequences, Captain Taylor, Captain William Taylor, uh, his license was suspended for one year uh, for not adequately taking precautions against a fire. He would not sail on the lakes again. Um, I know he was older. I don't know for sure that he retired after this, but I know he did not sail on the Great Lakes right. anymore. And I can see that as being fair on a ship. You know, if, if there's no protocols in place, especially with things like drills, you know, emergency fire uh, responses and things like that. I I can see that being a a fair assessment of, of what needed to happen here. If someone needs to take the blame. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it's, it's like an appropriate punishment. Like you can't hero your way out of negligence. Yeah. You Um, know? Yeah. And like, obviously there, you'd have to think that there's gotta be punishments higher up too, in terms of a a company wide thing. 
But at the end of the day here, this is the person who has responsibility for the vessel. He can make those, uh, he can make those changes if he wants to, uh, in terms of when are drills happening, how often, who's trained to do these things, how many how people, serious, like how seriously are we taking these drills? Yeah, that how, kind of thing. How many people am I leaving on the ship at a given time? That makes sense to me. I, I would kind of have been surprised if it was less than this, just given the amount of people who were killed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but he did not sail again. Uh, Canada Steamship Lines, they ended up paying out $2 million in damages for the disaster, which seems low. I guess, uh, yeah, like even adjusted for like inflation, it's still not as much money as it seems like it probably should be. Uh, this was basically just another another nail in the coffin of what was already a declining industry of passenger travel on the lakes. Uh, like we saw in that quote earlier about making these ships fireproof, how that overhaul would have cost something like $250,000. Just doing that to make these ships fireproof, was it was just too expensive to be worth it. At a time when not enough people were using this, they weren't making that much money. It didn't right. really make sense to, to invest all this in these ships. So that being the case... Uh, CSL ceased operating passenger routes on the Great Lakes at the end of the 1949 season, and it liquidated the Northern Navigation Lines division. Uh, the last remaining liner, the Huronic, was sold for scrap. So you could you could say that this is the end of a major chapter in in Great right. Lakes history of of it being a place where you would go on a cruise with your family, you know, for the weekend, for the week, or something like that. Um, and and it and it ends in this. Uh, this fiery hell on the SS Neuronic in Toronto Harbor. Yeah. It's interesting. Like that concept doesn't even exist anymore. Really? Like it's nothing I've ever thought about mm-hmm. previously, and but how cool would that be today to have something like that? Like I, I need it up. Yeah, for sure. I was, I was uh, talking to Katie about that, about how like, that's not even something I, I ever thought of like a, a passenger cruise on, on the great lakes really. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh and then also, also you you got to look at the time. I think also you know this is almost into the fifties where ships, yeah things are changing. Ships are old news. Like send me somewhere on a plane. That's that's right. what I want to do. Yeah, I think that you're right. It does has like more of the glamour uh, New York to L A kind of thing. The, mm-hmm. the jet set idea. Yeah, and you, and you know individual car ownership increasing. More and more people have their own car. They can take a road trip if they want to. And yeah, I mean, not to go too far with the concept, but you have the idea of the suburbs, like your own space. You don't want that communal experience of being with 600 other people on a ship. Yeah, like don't... Just the preferences change. Don't make me meet a ship full of people and the captain. I don't want to do that. (laughs) So anyway, that is the the story of the SS Noronic. There are memorials to her. There's a steamship Noronic memorial at Mount Pleasant Cemetery in Toronto. In Toronto's Harbor Square Park, there's a memorial plaque that uh, gives a brief description of the tragedy, and it commemorates the 119 lives lost. In terms of company operations today, so CSL still operates. Today, they're headquartered in Montreal. Uh, Their Trillium-class freighters can be seen on the lakes and in international shipping routes. Uh, The Great Lakes freighters are the Bay St. Paul, the Bay Calmeau, Whitefish Bay, and Thunder Bay. They have the Lake Bulk carriers, uh, CSL Welland and CSL St. Laurent. And they have five Panamax bulk carriers, the Tecumseh, the Paul E. Martin, the Tacoma, the Toronto, and the Algoma Vision. Interesting. So that's it's interesting how like, that name still operates. Mm-hmm. But also you can kind of look back and see, I guess you could call it 
branding savvy of keeping that Northern Navigation lines as its own brand. And that way, when you need to get rid of it, it's kind right. of very, very convenient to sort of crumble it up and throw it away. And you don't have the same connection uh, in terms of probably public recognition. Right. So, yeah, final thoughts on this. I take this story as a reminder to not, I guess, latch on to the the sensational story right away. Uh, right. Because I definitely did. Like, when I first read about this, I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be a perfect one to talk about so we can we can criticize the crew for being cowards and, and running away from the ship. And, like, that's not what I found at all once I dug into this. I, I really expected to tell that story to kick off Season 2. Um, but we told a different story, and I think that's cool. That's what I like about this is finding things for myself, maybe that are different than my original perception, and maybe, maybe I don't know, opening up a door for someone else who maybe knows the story, but but only knows the one version of it. Right. You know, in, in both cases of the ships we covered in this very long episode, the Hemonic and the Noronic, there's kind of the surface-level, easily accessible story, and then there's the one beneath it where there's a little bit more to the picture. That seems like common sense. I know, especially like in the internet age, don't believe everything you read. But both of these seem to be very uh, widespread, very pervasive stories that maybe don't capture all of the detail. For sure. And I think that's everything for now. Yeah, no, I think it's a good one. Like you said, it's nice not getting too caught up in the, the sensationalism and kind of saying what actually happened or to the best of our knowledge, what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it's a fun one. It's a good, it's a good start to season two. I hope people enjoy listening to this. If you've made it uh, all the way through the end of both of these episodes with us, thank you for, for joining us here. So yeah, we hope you enjoyed this one and we'll be back back soon with some more content for you uh, until then. Take care, everyone.